in the past few years, the meditation circles has been a little ditty that has made the rounds. Perhaps some of you have heard it. The lights are on, but there's nobody home. Have you heard that? I guess it hasn't made the rounds. <laughs> I must be, I've been talking to myself for the last few years. <laughs> well, just, okay, then it's new to you. Okay. It really should be, uh, the lights are on because there's nobody home. When there's somebody home, it's rather dark and dim. If you can get the analogy, it's to our mind. It's to the degree to which the mind is self-centered, egotistical, self-cherishing, separate, preoccupied with me and mine. And that's the core of the Buddha's teaching. All the many words that comprise the Tapitaka, which are many, many sermons which comprise the scriptures and Buddhism, all the techniques, everything that we've been doing since we got here, Friday, whenever, has to do with disentangling ourselves from something that is creating suffering. And that something is us. So when it says the lights are on, but there's nobody home, it's talking about the great death that the Zen, the old Zen masters talked about. The great death is not the death of the body. Anyone can do that. Right? Without trying. You don't have to take a workshop at Interface to learn how to do that. You just die. Yogis, non-yogis, great people, obscure people. But to have the great death, which is to die before you die, so that when you die, you don't die. Does that make any sense? There's nobody there to die. Sure, the body dies. Now, do you mean to say these little exercises that we've been doing with the breath and just in, out, in, out for these for this almost a week now? You mean to say that's what that has to do with? Yes. Um, I want to make sure that we cover some of, uh, elaborate on some of what went on in the guided meditation and also go a bit beyond that. But before doing it, I think um, this notion of no self has to be clarified a bit. Uh, as many of you know, when we start to do wisdom work, we begin to look at what are called the three signata, the three signs of existence. At least in the Buddha's teaching, these, these are the three most profound aspects of existence. One, as you heard last night in Ryan's talk, impermanence. No matter where you look, everything that arises passes. The other is that there's an unsatisfactoriness or a kind of psychophysical tension that runs through all of existence. When you get very quiet in meditation, people on the long retreats, no doubt you've experienced it. It's incredible what you see, what it's like to be a human being, how fragile it is, how fragile the body is. It's almost never the way we want it to be. How about the mind? We get it to be the way we want it to be and then it's gone. And there's, there is fulfillment in life. The Buddha talks extensively about it 
all kinds of joys of family life and world enjoyment, which are valued, which have a place. There are joys that come from practice, from a very concentrated mind, exquisite joys, but they're not absolutely fulfilling. They're not, they, they lack an ultimate fulfillment. Let's say you get certified by Jung and Freud and Eric Erickson. You have your ego identity all taken care of, ego syntonicity. There's more to go. Then the trouble first begins when you think you've got an identity. I mean, a good solid one. A nice serviceable one that everyone likes and that you like. Big trouble. That's the beginning of the spiritual path for many people, when they come within range of that, working really hard, gathering degrees and trimming the body and taking all kinds of self-improvement classes and retreats like this, getting to the point where they're, by God, I've got an, I've got an identity at last. And then the Buddha comes and says, take a look at that, will you? It's much more trouble than it's worth, maintaining that identity, protecting it, and so forth. And you can't count on it. And other people don't necessarily see it the way you do, nor do they protect it for you. In fact, they often assault it. So with all of the obvious, really miraculous, beautiful things in life, what is being said, and this is not to be taken up as a belief, Buddhism is not the right word for Buddhism. It's not an ism. It has nothing to do with subscribing to beliefs or opinions or views. That's a block. And the early stages of enlightenment, it's one of the first things to go, is you don't get attached to views and opinions anymore. You can have them, but you know that they're just views or opinions. That's all. They're useful within limits. So any of the things that are said here are meant to be tested in our own practice, even in permanence. It won't really help you as an idea. I mean, you can use it at parties, talk about it, maybe shake some people up and make a stir and make a name for yourself, get a new identity. <laughs> but the way it does help is when we see it time and time and time again with increasing depth and subtlety until the heart finally gets it. Oh, you mean everything's impermanent? Yeah. That's what I've been saying for the last 2,500 years. Well, it takes a long time to really, really learn that. Uh, the Buddha once said that one of the characteristics of arhants, which are people who have, in this lineage, that's a term for fully enlightened beings who are, in a sense, second in, just below being a Buddha, He said that <clears throat> they know that everything that arises passes away and no one else does. Well, are you kidding? We all know that. We all know that everything that arises passes away. Ryan said last night, what, it was a donut shop and then it was this, a noodle shop and a dress shop. But we don't really know that everything arises passes away. If we really knew it, we'd be free because we'd be living in accordance with that. A lot of the suffering that we have 
is because our intelligence has not become attuned to the way things are. If things are constantly changing, as everyone seems to be saying and agreeing, agreeing to, then it makes no sense to get attached to things because it's just an invitation to suffer a lot. So more and more you begin to see the way things are and it becomes possible to live a non-attached life or to approach that. Even a bit of an approximation to it is really an enormous help. That means that while things are there, we're fully with them and when they're gone, we learn how to let them go. If we get what we want, we're happy and we enjoy it. And when it leaves, as it will, we let it go. When we don't have what we want, we can endure. It's okay. We know that we won't always get our way. It's part of growing up, isn't it? One way or another, either life will, you know, pushes us around or you can get it the more delicate way through introspection and that takes you much deeper. So we have to see that everything that arises passes away. We did some of that with the breath. You can really, if you watch the breath a lot from that angle, that law is going to start to affect you you'll become more internalized. There's a, dis, a, a, uh, a lack of ultimate fulfillment, sometimes called dukkha. Sometimes the lack is, is very painful, even tormenting. There is a fair amount, a lot of torment in life. Just turn on the news and we don't have to turn on the news. Just turn on our own channel from time to time and maybe often. Those who've been on this retreat, probably everyone knows, we, we suffer. If you're a human being, you suffer. And then finally, another, the, the index of wisdom or another window into seeing the way things are is that is anatta, no, not self. It really doesn't mean no self. It's this last one I'd like to say a little bit about. The first two are more obvious, but even when you understand the last one, the first two become clearer. They're all really part of the same thing. They're one thing. Things are impermanent. There's a certain degree of an absence of ultimate fulfillment. They're unsatisfactory. And then finally, there's no independent, autonomous, substantial self that has a core that can stand up to anything, that can stand up to impermanence, that can stand up to any of the problems that come about. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. It's just this process that itself is impermanent. Now, teaching anatta is very difficult. We have to, for all of us, and more important, beginning to see it, to actually uh, have an experience of, the, of these words. At first, just to understand them a little bit intellectually is very helpful. When I first started teaching, I would cover all three equally. I felt it was my duty to try to teach Buddhism uh, as correctly as possible. Impermanence, dukkha, suffering, not self. And I would really try to stick to that. And whenever we got to not self, the brows would start furrowing up and people would start going like this and (laughs) yawning and people start going to the bathroom. And, you know, I didn't like that first two where I got across and what's wrong with you people? Can't you understand the natto? Because I didn't understand it either, but I was doing my best. 
And as time went on, I started to teach it less and less and less. I wonder why. It made teaching a lot smoother. But it was a little bit like something that happened at MIT some years ago. This actually happened. There was a professor of psychology at MIT who was a a very staunch behaviorist. For those of you who are not aware of what that is, it's that everything is, our behavior is conditioned by uh, punishment and rewards and that our life keeps being conditioned by that. We're totally conditioned by reward and punishment. And so this teacher was a pacer. He would kind of go back and forth as he taught. He was very, actually a popular teacher and a lot of nervous energy. And he'd go pacing back and forth in front of the class. And so one day the class uh, got into a conspiracy and they decided to use his own teachings on him. So every time he went to one side of the room, they would all look with great interest and start feverishly taking notes. And really looking, you know, those big pop eyes like, wow, really profound and interesting. And then when you go to the other side of the room, <laughs> they would start to get distracted and talk to one another and, you know, twiddle their fingers and drop their pencils on the floor. And as happens here, start clearing your throat and coughing, looking at your watch. And so he started, at first he would cover the whole room and then little by little, finally they had him backed into the corner where where he just wanted to be with those people who kept nodding and looking at him gaga, you know, and and liking what he was doing. So that happened to me and uh, it took me a number of years, about, I don't know, eight or nine years to finally realize that I I really, uh, I've started teaching a not to less and less and less. It was part of my practice, a very important part, the most important. And so I, I made a comeback and I started trying to bring it forward again and find ways to make it a little bit more accessible. And I'd like to do a little of that tonight. A bit of background, some, some notions that might help you. When we talk about self-knowledge, we have to be careful to distinguish it within, uh, distinguish between self-image, self-knowledge, and you could even say self-consciousness. They're all sometimes rather confusing for us. We don't see the difference. Self-image are all the actual images, verbal conclusions that we come to about ourselves. I'm a such and such. And if you listen to the mind carefully, and even not so carefully. You know, just what do you think has been taking you away from the breath so many times? The mind has just been addicted to describing itself to itself. What it thinks it is. What it thinks it used to be. What it thinks it will be. After this retreat, I'll be so, or such and such, and much better than the way I used to be. And, uh, seeing itself in certain ways, and sometimes even in outfits, and driving certain cars, and... Uh, You know, it's endlessly presenting itself to itself, having imaginary conversations with people where we say the right thing for a change and they just, I don't know, (laughs) applaud. I would see all of you really, you can, you know, lighting up when I finish talking about Anatta and just really looking interested. 
kind of self-confirmation. And then also we tear ourselves down. The mind does the same. It's the same thing. And so we are very caught up in images that represent the experience of living. They're verbal or pictorial conclusions. Self-knowledge would be vast, but it would include seeing that process at work. Self-knowledge encompasses that. Self-knowledge is seeing the way the mind works, the way the mind is addicted to self-description, the way it's trying to convince itself that it really and truly exists. See, I don't think it would work so hard if it had the confidence that it truly existed in a substantial way. So maybe for all of us, it's not just uh, some special people. So apparently at a very deep level, the mind does lack confidence that it really has a core. Even those of us who in quotes have been certified by various therapists or meditation teachers or our mothers, whoever, Self-consciousness, which they're all in the same family, but they're different. Again, self-awareness can see self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is the preoccupation with me and mine. That is, you walk into a room and there's uh, a stiffness, a concern about how people are seeing you. Or you speak and there's some worrying about whether what you're saying is going to be taken correctly, whether you'll be understood, how your appearance is being met. And so there's some inhibition, there's a preoccupation with being. Self-awareness has uh, the, if you remember when we talked about sati or mindfulness, there's no ego in that. It doesn't have a self standpoint. It's just clear, pure seeing. So self-awareness is what is that in us which gets to know all these things we're talking about. It really can investigate. Now, once you claim it, my self-awareness, my self-knowledge, then you've, gone, you've fallen back into images, creating the appearance of self. Now, let me um, say a few more things about this anatta. When we say that things are not self. We say we don't really mean that no self exists. I don't think that's what the Buddha means. What is meant is that the self exists, but not quite in the way in which we think it does. Delusion is taking this passing show of images and conclusions, fears and loves and apprehension and hopes which all come back to some imputed I or, or me or mine, taking that to have a solid core, to be substantial, enduring, autonomous. It isn't. That's why impermanence is a very beautiful door. You'll see, if you want to understand anatta and you don't feel you ready for it, don't worry about that. If you can begin to see how everything changes, start out where you can see it. If it's the breath, good. Perhaps you prefer working on the body, just seeing sensations in the body coming and going. Fine. Tomorrow we'll go into more detail. You don't have to uh, 
become a breath maniac. You can work on other things to see impermanence. But finally, it will take you to see that the mind is made of the same stuff. You'll see that it will have all these different conclusions, images, notions. They come and they go. Is there any one that you can point to and say, that's me? Try it. I'm a generous person. And then, you know, you feel good. The breath gets nice and smooth. Can you lend me 10 bucks until payday? Well, didn't I... Uh, oh, I, I'm supposed to be a generous person. No, I'm not. Am I generous or am I stingy? Well, both went through the mind. One of my teachers gave me very good advice, advice which I sometimes pass on to you. He said, always keep the mind that decided to practice. When you would come into interviews and be wavering, waffling all over the place. That means there are many minds. And one or a few of them decided to practice. There are a lot more minds decided not to practice. Right? Didn't they come up? Some of them wanted to pack and leave. We have many minds. And what he said was, come back to the mind that decided to practice. That one, that one is beneficial. That one has direction. That takes you someplace. That protects you. So many of the other minds that come and go, what do they really lead to? They're governed by ignorance. They're governed by greed or hatred. They're under the influence of the kalesas, those three poisons. Uh, under the influence. Do you know what the kalesas are? Those are those three toxins in the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, that account for an enormous amount of human behavior. Very important to understand, because um, that's, that's another way of saying the same thing, what the Buddha was talking about. The arhats have eliminated that. In other words, their minds are purified. They're more, me and mine are gone. There's no more constantly taking everything to be me and mine. And greed and hatred, if you look carefully at it, you'll see it's always around me and mine. We're not going to be greedy except for some, something. It's for me. And when we get angry, it's, because, it's the same thing. It has that as its referent. Lately, I've been... Uh, so with some of my friends in Cambridge, I think kind of a drag because I, for a while, one way in which I've been attempting to train myself is to see as much as I can what happens, whether it's on the news or in Harvard Square, from the point of view of Dharma principles. You know, if you do that for a while and you practice, eventually you start to actually see some of this, not just as ideas and principles, but some of the principles because I think they're universal and not bound by time, you see them for themselves. It's not no longer an intellectual idea that you're trying to subscribe to, but the actuality becomes very clear. So, I see kalesas all over the place. The problem is not nuclear war, it's kalesas. The bombs or the nuclear energy is not going to do anything. It's the, the, the greed in human minds, the aggression in human minds, the ignorance of the consequences that created the situation. And so the war on drugs is all about stamping out externals. We never get to the source. I, very, I almost never hear anyone say, well, why do Americans 
or it's more than Americans now, but certainly this country. Why do Westerners? Why do they? Why do they need so much, so many chemical comforters of all kinds? Rather, we're going to, you know, kill all the people who are sending the drugs, and then we're going to imprison all those people here who are dishing them out, and then we'll uh, confiscate all the drugs. They don't push it far back enough. Why do we need these substances? Why do we need to either drink or ingest something that will ease the pain? What is it about life? What is it about living, even in such a privileged and wonderful society as America, that makes us still reach out for all these things external to ourselves whenever anything goes wrong? It started with aspirin. And now look where we are. The other day I heard, you know how policemen talk? They, they, they have a few, some of these, I actually like policemen. I'm very, um, I feel great compassion for them. I feel many of them are, they, they got it from both sides. They're sort of risking their life all the time. And I know they can be corrupt and all that. But, uh, and no one appreciates them. Everyone dislikes them. But no one wants to do their job. But you really like them when you're afraid. Anyway, they have these words, at least in Boston, about the assailant and uh, was apprehended. They have a lot of big words about what's going on. Um, and I overheard in the car, one of them was, I don't even know if this is funny, but I'm just going to say it. <laughs> they had someone on the side and I was walking past and I could hear him phoning in something. And he said that the, um, the driver of the vehicle, not the car, the driver of the vehicle was under the influence of alcohol. And I just wanted to go over. I didn't, of course. I wanted to go over and correct him and say, no, he's under the influence of the calaisis. But, <laughs> but I'm well brought up. I minded my own business. I mean, maybe the day will come when people get arrested for being under the influence of calaisis. <laughs> I doubt it. Let me give you another a, a sense of what I mean that there is self. There is, it's obvious that we have an ego. It's obvious that there are uh, currents in the mind of me and mine and what you could call selfing or selfhood. That's there. Anyone can see that. What is being said it is it's there, but it's not there in quite the way in which we think it's there. So let me give you a somewhat far-fetched example, but I hope it can convey uh, the, the spirit of it. Let's say it's a, a late-night uh, horror show and you're watching on TV. You know, the ones that people kind of turn on these programs to, so they can get terrified. Uh, some people seem to like that. I've never figured it out, but the, you know, apparently there's a lot of people who like it. Okay, so let's say you're watching. If you're the kind of person who gets terrified, I just find them boring. But anyway, uh, but I have watched people watch them. And some people really get frightened watching them. I mean, we're talking about terrified. Okay, so here's this box, right? And there's some images about it, monsters and all kinds of horrible thing, especially this monster that you, you, know, you look at it, it's laughable, it's so ugly. You know, it's so grotesque that it's hilarious. It's like a Halloween mask. But people are screaming and, well, you know, 
Okay, now all it is, is that there's an image there in the box. It's some kind of, it's a roll of film, right? And through electrical currents, it comes across and you're sitting in your living room, sipping something and you watch that and you're terrified. Okay, now the monster, let's say if you wanted to really uh, be heroic, if you took an axe and started to break open the set to try and find the monster or to kill it, there's nothing there to kill. It's just an image that flashed through the screen. Yet you're terrified. You've broken out in a sweat and you ran out of the room. Uh, what really happened? Nothing. Not really. Almost nothing. Something happened. The, this image is true. It's real. It happened. It's just what it was. It was an image of a very grotesque creature. but it doesn't exist in quite the way in which we think it exists. Now, if you imbue it with a certain solidity, if you give to it an inherent quality, which it lacks, maybe that's the key term to remember, it doesn't have inherent nature, intrinsic nature. It's a tentative coming together of something, dependent on all kinds of causes and conditions, perhaps darkness in the room, your emotional state, everything having to do with the electronics of TV. All of that comes together. That's straight Buddhist teaching. It's all a dependent arising. There's nothing that's really independent. Nonetheless, it had an effect because of the way in which we perceived it. So, there isn't a monster, but then again, there is, in effect. Now, our self is like that. It's, the Buddha's not saying these things aren't happening, images and so forth. It's happening, all right. But it isn't real in the way in which we take it to be. Now, one of the main jobs of vipassana, for vipassana yogis, is to begin to see through that and to wake up. Uh, a lot of things that are frightening no longer are frightening. Some of it is so obvious, and yet we need years of help. It's really not so much necessarily a matter of time. Some people seem to, once you get the knack of it, a lot of suffering falls away. We begin to get to see what is really happening from moment to moment in the mind. For example, some years ago in Cambridge, there was a a man who was a postman. Um, He said he was an ex-postman. He didn't say why. We found out why as the meditation, which is a group of us sitting together as a class. And during the sitting, I could see that he was sweating and shaking and seemed to be uh, just terrifically frightened. So at the end of the sitting, the way this group worked, I would draw people out and just say, you know, how is your, you know, the way we do it here, how's your practice going? And he just sat there wringing wet. He didn't, wasn't too eager to say anything. Finally, we got to him and he told us this story that when he was he used to be a postman just recently and he on his route was delivering mail and this dog ran up to him and bit him really and it really hurt and then it bit him again he ran away and uh, and he couldn't come back to his route because he was so frightened of the dog eventually he quit being a postman there were more reasons than that but he really got bitten by a dog while delivering mail and while he was sitting in meditation he relived the experience Well, you know, it's very easy to see, if you're not in his head, that his mind bit him. There was no dog there. He just got bitten by his own mind. 
But we don't see that. Now, we're doing that a lot during the day. Now, as you get onto your mind, not only is it helpful, but it's hilarious. I mean, you don't have to go to the movies anymore. I mean, I like movies and I do go to them. But it's, you know, continuous performance, matinees, nights, you know. It's and not all, of us, not all of it is so tied to what's really going on. And notions about ourselves, when you look closely, you see it's words. You're da 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 da. <laughs> okay, now, if you identify with it, attach to it, cling to it, grasp onto it, then you make da 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 da. You make that, and you might as well be it, just like with the monster. If you make monster, you have monster. So don't make monster in the first place. Just let it be celluloid. Now, it's the same with our mind. We keep. Uh, getting attached. We get attached to what it produces and then we suffer. The practice is seeing that and one of the best ways to begin to loosen this kind of slavery that we're all in is seeing the impermanence of whatever arises in the mind. No matter what it is, it comes and it goes. If you watch that enough times, the show starts being less convincing. How many times can you see it? How many times can you see Lawrence of Arabia? I saw it four times. The fifth time I walked out. Now, we seem to be able to watch, you know, our family drama. And, you know, and my parents left me wet in the crib when I was four years old and I've never recovered from that. You know, like, well, how many times have you shown that short, selected short subject? About 10,000. You know, it's time already. Okay, so you're wet in the crib, you know. It's boring. Your story is boring. Isn't it boring to you yet? Not yet. Okay, go back to the cushion. Go back and sit some more. And some of what Narayan was saying last night, I hope you caught it. At the beginning of our practice, we're very interested in the content of our story. And it's self-knowledge in the sense of learning more clearly about our tendencies and our biography, understanding our likes and dislikes with greater clarity, realizing that we loved this person but were unable to express it or that we didn't care for that person or that we're sorry we did this and seeing all kinds of our, our personal tendencies. It's very necessary to see that because that's influencing and guiding us so much. But a lot of... Now, when you switch to impermanence, you're switching from content to process. Now, the content's not so interesting because it's a very different... uh, It's like everything is flipped around. What was field is ground and what was ground is now the field. And now, independent of what the content is, you're concerned with the fact that it arises and passes away. No matter what your life story fragment is, no matter which one it comes up, it comes and it goes. Oh, that one too? Comes and it goes. Comes and it goes. And so, it's not easy for the mind to let go of its fascination with content and to begin to see that no matter what the story is, it begins and ends right then and there in that moment and then it keeps happening. Now, if you do that enough, it loses its potency. It loses its hold over you. You start to see thoughts as thoughts. The Buddha once gave the sh- probably the shortest spiritual sermon ever given. It said, you know, thoughts are thoughts, feelings are feelings, sounds are sounds, smells are smells, something. That's it. 
And you know, you, sometimes at the beginning you say, you know, that's thinking is just thinking. People will look at you. Uh, you know, well, I, you know, say something profound. I just did. Thinking is thinking. That's all it is. Thinking is just thinking. But we don't always treat it that way. It's like inflated, you know, like a balloon. You, you blow it up and then it has a different kind of reality. And then we're tyrannized by what we have created in our own mind by imbuing it with life, giving it a sense of self. And then it comes back at us. It's so convincing. So the practice is time and time again through careful observation. Now, you don't like walking meditation so much anyway, do you? So we're we're going to go over into that. (laughs) You can tell me. I I never liked it very much. (laughs) I like fast, natural walking outside. This slow stuff, I don't know. They say it's good for you. Let's go to the breath again, backtrack some of the things that we did in the guided meditation and a few beyond that. Some of this has come up in this retreat. A person will be following the breath. And actually, we actually create new forms of suffering for you. I don't know if you've noticed that. That is, once you start to take this on as a practice, the more retreats you've come to, the more you have a new kind of suffering that you never would have had if you had not heard of this practice, stayed clear of Buddhism. You would have had the same old kind of suffering, you know, fame and sex and money and power and all that, just good, healthy suffering. Now the kind of suffering is, I'm controlling my breath. (laughs) I can't stop controlling my breath. There are blockages in my breath. Does that... I don't have a long in-breath and out-breath. It isn't subtle. I'm not enjoying the breathing. Does that mean I'm not really a good yogi? Well, then we look closely at it. For example, uh, we all do control the breath. And some of that we do no matter what, whether we've heard of this practice or not. But some of the control comes about uh, because we find out that being aware of the breath is valuable. You know, up until learning about Vipassana, the breath was just the breath. You know, if you had a cold, you cared about it. If you had the wind wind knocked out of you in sports, you cared about it. But other than that, who cares about the breath? There's so many more interesting things to, to do. Then you come here and you keep, perhaps you've read some books, suddenly you find out there's some cash value to the breath. Oh, I didn't know that. It's breath. You know, the Buddha says it can take you all the way to enlightenment. Wow. This this breath that I've been just breathing with all these years, this in and out breath, yeah. Get concentrate with it, calm with it. Now, suddenly we become self-conscious about it because it now is a good thing. Now, that's the ego. That's selfing. That's me coming in. My practice. The problem in meditation is you some of you know, is the meditator. How to, how to let go of the meditator? That meditator keeps getting in the way. If the meditator weren't there, we'd be meditating, for goodness sakes. But there's something in us that keeps, you know, sits up tall, straight. You already can see trouble as soon as the posture straightens up, even though we tell you to sit straight. But uh, one time when I was in Korea, 
I straightened myself up in a certain way and the teacher walked by, tapped me on the shoulder and he said, see that? That's the whole problem. <laughs> what do you mean? I didn't get it. He said, did you watch how you straightened yourself up? You know, sure, the body should be straightened up, but there was something in there. You know, you really, that was really straightening yourself up. That's not it. That's suffering, what you just did. So it's not in the posture, it's something else, this me and mine, my posture, my practice, my meditation, my breath, my enlightenment, my retreat, my body, and so forth. Um, You can develop a lot of sensitivity through seeing impermanence in the breath, as was mentioned in the guided meditation. It can sensitize you to it. The breath is so delicate that it takes lots of turns here and there. And if you watch it, you'll begin to really get it that this world is clearly a changing one. In terms of dukkha, or this suffering that's talked about a lot, that too has to be clarified. For example, and this came out of one person's discussion of their practice today, uh, a blockage was experienced in the breathing, in the chest. What that meant was that the breath was not going in and out smoothly, whether it's physical or emotional or a combination of both. Now, that in itself was painful to that person. There's no question about that. There's no denying that. I'm not saying the person imagined it. But then once me and mine enter into it, uh, then we get into what's called dukkha. Then it becomes torment. Because what happened was the person then made a self out of that. So that it wasn't simply the fact that the body had some congestion or there was some, uh, just literally the breath went the way it went. But now the person made sense out of that in such a way as to impugn themselves. That I'm not a good meditator or that I'm I'm not a healthy person. That I have problems, that everyone else is feeling the breath flow freely and they all heard Thich Nhat Hanh and they're all enjoying the breath and I'm just sitting here miserable with my breath. And that was torment, suffering. That's the real distinctive aspect of of dukkha. The Buddha, everyone knows his pain in life. The Buddha didn't add so much. We all know that. Everyone knows that. What's distinctive about the doctrine of dukkha is it's talking about that which is added onto it over and above what's happening. The torment or whatever word you like For example, you often hear this, read this in Buddhist books, sickness, old age, and death. We all have that destiny. If you're born, you age, you get sick, and you die. And that's often used as an example of dukkha. That means it's a kind of existential suffering. It's built into the system, just the way it is. Now, that pain is there, and that's a kind of uh, intrinsic, a kind of dukkha. But what's distinctive about the Buddhist teaching is not that. It's not the pain of sickness. It's not the pain of aging. And it's not the pain even of dying. It's that we bring me and mine into it. This is my sickness. I'm getting older. And I'm going to die. And it's the me and the mine that's really feeling it. So the physical, I'm not saying that there isn't some pain that goes along with the aging of a physical body. Of course there is. But once me and mine comes into it, once we make a self out of it, 
we create this sense of some solid entity that's kind of living out their life with this body, and that body too has that solidity. Then you get into sorrow, suffering, torment. And the whole Buddhist teaching has to do with emptying the, the mind and body, which is basically what we're practicing, where the whole practice, the suffering and the liberation, all takes place in this mind and body. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to Thailand. Because as Buckaroo Banzai put it, no matter where you go, there you are again. <laughs> so you go to Thailand, same jerk as in Thailand. That's me I'm talking about. All he knows, wearing a straw hat, you know, a white shirt, and eating more noodles than usual. So no matter what you talk about, let's say there's grieving, someone dies. It's a natural condition to feel sorrow. But if it becomes attached to as me or mine, it becomes a kind of self-pity and all kinds of other things, then you get into genuine uh, dukkha. You get into um, something, suffering that's over and above just the natural conditions of responding to the loss of someone you love. Any example you give me, you, you prick yourself with a, uh, a pin. Everyone bleeds. But, you know, this was uh, uh, something I saw once. Two children got, uh, cut themselves with, uh, similar th- with thorns in the country. And just a little bit of blood came out. One got hysterical. He just ran to his mommy. You know, it was like the world was coming to an end. The other just looked at it, saw there was bleeding, went like that and just went on his way. The first one made it into a self. Me, mine, what's going to happen to me? So no matter what it is that, let's say, has been a problem for you during the retreat, I'm not denying that your knee hurts or your lower back hurts or you have hunger sometimes or that you miss people at home we all have that or we feel tired or discouragement comes into the mind or the breath is short and choppy and not pleasant. All of that has a certain amount of unpleasantness in it. But when me and mine joins it, when we attach to it and make it into a self, then we get into something else. Torment or, if it's not so extreme, you know, a little bit less intense. And so the Buddha's teaching have to do with under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. All of what we're doing is to prepare ourselves. We do it gradually. Now the the lights are on, but there's nobody home. It means the death of me and mine and this bright light it means these are the arhants. And people along the way who are approaching that, who have a radiance, a clarity. And that radiance is directly proportional to a letting go of this self-centeredness, this self-cherishing, this making everything into me, mine. The suffering in life comes from that. The, the real uh, profound meaning of dukkha is that. Now, as that gets minimized, and it's, I don't know if any of us will be able to become arhants in this room, but I am sure that all of us can minimize the amount of unnecessary suffering we do. Because there are people just like us. We're doing it. 
Some of you have already done it. And there's no reason why not to continue. And the more you catch on to it, the more you don't want to suffer unnecessarily. It's such a waste. If there's anything we can do about it, let's do it. And there is. We've been given this wonderful teaching. It's very clear and straightforward. Other people have done it. If you like, you can use the breath if you're attracted to that. It's so simple and obvious. Just happening all the time. Use it to calm yourself. And then when you want to uh, investigate, you can investigate the breath itself to see all of these attributes. They're in the breath. You can also use the breath as a support to investigate things. For example, a very wonderful practice. But please don't do it unless your mind is rather calm and steady. You're breathing in and breathing out, and while you're doing that, everything is, of course, coming and going. Thoughts and bodily sensations and sounds. And while breathing in and breathing out, you see the impermanence of whatever is predominant. You know, breathing in and breathing out, I hear a bird chirp. Chirp, chirp, gone. Breathing in and breathing out, a fantasy floats through the mind. And you, if the mind is quiet, the breath uh, is, adds a very soothing influence. It's very nourishing to mindfulness. Even if there's anger, the anger comes up. It's met with mindfulness and some breath. Conscious breathing. You know, we're always breathing, but I mean we're aware of it. And we see the anger arise and pass away so that you can practice dukkha with the breath now as an ally. The breath helping you with mindfulness. The key, the crown jewel is mindfulness. If it's calm, you become very calm from just following the breath wholeheartedly. You can immediately switch that. That's a, 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 a calm, a samadhi practice. Samatha. In a split second, you can make that into vipassana by turning your attention to the calm and seeing that it's impermanent. We all, that's another kind of suffering people get that they didn't have before they came here. They get to real peace and, oh, wow. But it doesn't last. And for some people, the attachment becomes so ferocious and the uh, aversion to investigating, like, I don't want, I don't care about impermanence or all this anatta stuff you're talking about. I just want to hang out here. It's just so wonderful. You practically have to get a derrick to get them out of there. But the way we do that, the derrick really is to help the person look and to see that this calm itself arises and passes away and that if you attach to it, you'll suffer. This body, the body in Pali language is called rupa. And some of the connotations of the word, the Pali word rupa, have to do with uh, fragile, tendency to break, easily damaged. That's, our body is like that. Even those of you who have been blessed with very healthy bodies. Now, if you get attached to the body as being I or mine, how can that not lead to suffering? When it gets old and you don't want it to, when it gets sick and you don't want it to, when it doesn't look the way some of the magazine ads look. So the breath can be a big help. And it's a very beautiful practice. It's all in the, the, the a sermon the Buddha gave during a what started out as a three-month retreat called the Anapanasati Sutta. 
Well, it has, has to do with mindfulness with breathing. You're either mindful of the breath directly or the breath is accompanying you as you develop mindfulness not only in the sitting but all day long. While you're walking, you're in touch with the breath. While you're washing dishes, you're in touch with the breath. Listening to the telephone, driving your car. As you practice it, the breath kind of ends, adds a steadying influence. It minimizes unnecessary thoughts, as was mentioned. It's very refreshing when you need it. Sometimes just two or three breaths experienced consciously and you're, you're back in the moment. If you're not so drawn to the breath, you may want to use it just to calm down, concentrate yourself, but rather just investigate the impermanence of things without dwelling on the breath so much. Fine. That's another form of vipassana. We'll go into that tomorrow. Okay, thank you for your patience. I, the movement from the samadhi practice to the vipassana practice sometimes a bumpy ride. Some people just don't want to do it. You know, they just... I don't want to hear another set of instructions. I'm, I'm, finally, I'm comfortable with this. Just breathe in, breathe out. And now you're going to tell me all these other things. We'll go into that in the sitting right after breakfast tomorrow. Um, it's perfectly fine if you want to mainly do the, the samadhi practice for the rest of the retreat. It wouldn't be a waste of time. And so it'll be very much an individual matter, which I hope you take up in interviews. Some of you will be doing more Vipassana. Some will continue mainly with um, Samadhi work. And I hope most of you, it's a, really a blend of both. They're not meant to be separated. Knowing when to do one and when to do the other, we'll be giving you some hints so that they uh, become a, a unified practice. Can we have a moment's silence? I don't think there's really uh, much point in uh, trying to do the walking if you like to, of course. It's just about 10 minutes or so. Um, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but please take a break. Try to stay awake in the break, in the midst of it, and then we'll be back for um, the final sitting of the evening. Thank you for your patience. I know those who are here for the guided meditation, it's a long time to attend to anything. <laughs>